following audio is from Crossroads Church in West Ossipee, New Hampshire. For more information about Crossroads Church, you can go to www.crossroadsossipee.com. Living here on earth meant living for Jesus and doing his work. And dying meant being with Jesus and enjoying his presence. Now we have also talked about the fruit of that single-mindedness. Do you remember what it was? Disunity. The fruit of single-minded is unity. Single-mindedness is unity. Doesn't that make sense? When we're all focused on the same thing, seems like we'd get along all right. right. When we, the church, are focused on living for Christ, we can be united around those things and, uh, and around the things that are most important and live lives that are worthy of the gospel of Christ. Now, I want you to look at John 17 first in order to show that this idea of unity within the body of Christ, within the church family, is not just some nice idea that Paul came up with. It's not something that preachers preach on just so everybody gets along and makes church life a little bit easier. Though it does. It was the desire of Jesus Christ himself that the church may be one. And then we're going to look at Philippians 2 and just and see just how that unity gets accomplished. So let's look at John 17, verse 1. Hear the word of our Lord Jesus Christ. His prayer. Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. Since you have given him authority over all flesh, to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I have glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world, Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them, and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. I'm praying for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I'm coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I don't ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. 
As you send me into the world, so have I sent them into the world. And for, the sake, for their sake I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in the truth. That's Jesus' prayer for his disciples there in the garden with him that day. Now, in verse 28, he starts to pray for the whole church. Pray for you and for me. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they all may be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and have loved them even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with you where I may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known, that the love with which you have loved me may be in them, and I in them. Let's pray. Father, my prayer is the same this morning as the Lord Jesus, that we may be one, even as the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit are one, that we as a church family may be perfectly one, it's not possible without your help. And so this morning we pray for your help, that your spirit would show us what you mean in your word as we look to it together. May we follow the example set by Jesus Christ. For it's in his name we pray. Amen. Jesus said that the unity of the church, our oneness, would show to the world that God sent his son and that he loves his kids, both Jesus and the church. Do you hear that? Do you? Does it matter? Jesus said that the unity of the church, the oneness of his followers, would show to the world that God sent his son, Jesus, into the world. That's a pretty serious business. Hmm. I wonder if I might should have spent more time trying to define what unity is. So it's not some abstract idea. I'm not sure that I did, but I pray the Holy Spirit makes it clear to us. Unity is our goal. And though that is a lofty goal, real unity is uh, just like your grandmother's spaghetti sauce. It's not possible to make without the secret ingredient. <laughs> that was funnier on paper. <laughs> um, 
I wouldn't talk about my mother's secret sauce because it's Chef Boyardee. <laughs> it's Father's Day, good thing. Not Mother's Day. She's not here. Um, secret ingredient to unity in the church. Unity more than just getting along, everybody being friendly and loving and warm handshakes. But uniting thought in mind and purpose. We talked about that, right? That our strategy and our purpose is, uh, is make and mature disciples together as a family for Jesus Christ. Now, that's our purpose and goal and the strategy in which we employ to do that. Uh, and when we are united in purpose and goal, uh, we are effective in the world, I think. But a secret ingredient to unity within a church is really no secret at all may come as a surprise to you, but it's been written down for maybe 2,000 years or so. Um, It only seems like a secret (laughs) because it's so often neglected that some people might think that this doesn't exist at all. Hmm. So let's look at Philippians 2 and see the not-so-secret secret. Philippians 2. Chapter 2, verse 1. That is a page 980 in a pew Bible. Paul writes, So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in His Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Amen. I bet you could preach every Sunday all year long on this passage. I don't feel inspired to try right now, but we're going to start with one anyway. Jesus prayed in John 17 that we, the church, would be one just as he and the Father are one. That is the definition of unity, and that is Paul's desire for the church at Philippi. That we would be one. Anybody that questioned the deity of Jesus Christ is because they don't read the scripture. He says it right there, okay? Pretty plain and simple, black and white. So Paul says in verse 1, If there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in his spirit, any affection and sympathy, now Paul is clearly assuming these things are true. I don't 
thing we need to delve into all the theological ramifications and applications of these different things. Paul is assuming since these things are true, since you are encouraged, since you are experienced Christ's love, they are in, encouraged by Christ. They did find comfort in His love and they did participate with the Holy Spirit. They did feel affection and sympathy. And since they did, as verse 2 says, that they should strive to complete his joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Now, this is Paul's main point. In fact, this is the point of the entire letter to the Philippians. See, if Paul didn't write all these three-point sermons, that's why I like one-point sermons, right? This is the whole point of this passage and the whole letter, that the church's desire should be the same as Paul's, to make their joy complete by having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. What's the word we use for that? Unity. Now, forgive me, but I'll remind you last week of the picture we used to describe unity. Do you remember? Something about baseball, oddly enough. I know, it's strange. Yeah. NASCAR? No. That's not, that is zero unity in NASCAR. No. Baseball is God's perfect sport. All right? Look at this. It's a diverse group of people with different talents and abilities striving together towards a common goal. And the picture still holds true, but operating like that is impossible without the secret ingredient. You can have nine guys, or, or if you play softball, nine girls, or if you play with old men, it's still softball, right? Yeah. Sorry, well, it's true. Right. The, there, there must be something that makes attaining the goal of working together towards that common goal possible. The secret ingredient. The kind of unity and harmony that the church needs just like a good baseball team needs. Do you know what it is? One ingredient. Okay, well, we're kind of assuming Jesus already. That's, sorry, no son of skill answers. Try again. No, we're looking, unity is to go. What we need is humility. Humility is the secret ingredient to unity. Good job. This is pastor's wife someday. Yeah. Mm. The kind of unity and harmony that the church needs is not possible without humility. Look at verse 3 and 4. He says, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. When life is all about us, all about me, or to put an even finer point on it, when our faith is all about us, when my faith is all about me, we argue and we fight. We become resentful of those who don't see things the way that we do. Our preferences become more important to us than our relationships. In fact, when we forsake humility, we disobey the great commandment to love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength 
and to love our neighbors as ourselves. Why? Because we're too busy loving ourselves to love them. It's so easy for our, for our faith to turn inward and just be about us. And even we think about our gospel presentation and telling somebody about Jesus. What is the benefit of salvation? Your sins are forgiven. You get to go to heaven. All alone? No. I hope not. We all want to be there, right? We forget about the benefit of the church. This world thing, the church is only about fighting and being right and making rules. Not love and support and prayer and help, comfort. This is the purpose of the church. It's why we exist. But we forget that. Why is that? Because our faith all goes this way. It's all pointing to us. Now, I will tell you, I'll say it now and it's on record, that I have been more guilty of selfish ambition and vain conceit than I care to recall. In my pride, I so often count myself more significant than others. I made a career out of getting my own way. and belittling those who would stand opposed to me, to my thoughts and ideas. And I used to criticize the church for not uniting around what I thought was most important and my way of thinking. But that is not the way of unity. That is not the way of Christ. That is the way of our father, Adam. Listen to Genesis chapter 3, verse 1. The serpent said to the woman, Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, in the middle, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of his fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Now I ask you, what was Adam and Eve's sin? It's more than disobedience. It's selfish ambition and vain conceit. Their sin was pride. The sin that is pregnant with all the other sins. What God had given them was not enough for them. They thought they deserved more. 
and they condemn themselves and all of humanity with them. What is the answer to this sin? Isn't it humility? Isn't it the opposite? They could have said, God knows what's best for us. And he is God and we are not. So go away, serpent. We don't want to eat of that fruit because God knows better than we do. It doesn't matter if it makes us wise. It doesn't matter if it looks good to eat. God said, don't do it. Don't eat it. And he's God. Now, what an answer that would have been. Well, they didn't give it. Humility is the answer to pride. Or at least the response to the temptation to be proud. To count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also the interests of others. The focus for a good ball player is to always be on the good of the team, not the personal stats. On the good of others, not just on individual accomplishments or ambitions. Selfishness has no place in God's church. You hear me? It is the number one killer of unity. It is the number one killer of churches. You want to know why churches die? This is it. You want to pray for churches that are dying? This is what you can pray for. Humility. But humility, like unity within the church, was not Paul's idea first. It was Jesus' idea. Look at verse 5. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, a mind of humility, who though he was in a form of good, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. I want you to hear me very carefully. Jesus is good. He is co-equal with God the Father, and with God the Holy Spirit. We call this a trinity. Now, there's a difficult uh, theological point to grasp because our minds are limited. But I'll show you a good picture of what the trinity looks like. Give me that spinny thing. No, it's not just because she was playing with it. She had to put it away. You've seen these stupid things? Right? No doctor has proven that this is a good thing for kids to play with. Just saying. Here is God the Father. Here is God the Son. Here is God the Holy Spirit. Here is God. 
okay? Throw that stupid thing away. <laughs> I have about 85 of them at my house. I'll take your word for it. <laughs> Jesus, co-equal with God the Father and with God the Holy Spirit, eternally existent in glory, but in humility, veiled himself, veiled that glory with flesh, becoming fully human, because he considered humanity, you and me, more significant than himself. Now think about that. How come we can't pull that off? Jesus can do it. He's good himself. Eternally existent in glory that we cannot see, for our faces would melt off. We would die in his presence because of our sinfulness. But he veiled that glory in flesh. He didn't remove it. He just covered it up with a suit of skin. Because he considered you more significant than himself. Now, I think if God can do that, it might be a good idea for us to try. And there is the gospel. That God loved us so much that he gave his one and only son. This is a picture of true humility to humble himself to serve humanity. This is the one who holds our atoms together and keeps them from flying apart. He died in the most humiliating way that mankind had ever invented. Do you know that? Do you know that's why crucifixion is so significant? In our pictures and posters and painting over the course of uh, humanity's lifespan, we paint Jesus in a, in, in a way that is, does not reflect the brutality and hum, humility of the cross. If you read the gospel account, you can see Roman soldiers dividing his garments among them, casting lots for his clothes as scripture predicted. What does that mean for Jesus? That he was beaten and nailed naked to a tree on the road into the city where everybody could see. Why is it that we can't serve each other when this is the model that we have? And he did that for you. He did it for me. He did it for us even though our pride continues to rear his ugly head. Through faith in him, that sin of our pride is already forgiven even though we're going to deal with it tomorrow. Jesus had more right to glory than anyone ever because he is God. But he laid, his, uh, laid aside his own interests to serve us. And that is the model that we have to follow. Therefore, God has highly exalted him 
and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Jesus himself prayed there in that garden that we, his church, would be one. In humility, counting one another as more significant than ourselves and looking not only to our own interests but the interests of others so that the world would know that God sent his son because of his great love for us. Our unity, accomplished only by the grace of God through humility, displays God's love for the world. And those who know and embrace God's love through faith in Jesus Christ will have no fear on the day that when every knee bows and every tongue confesses that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Because we know we're His. And He loves His kids. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Lord, what a word you have given us this morning. And what a picture of what humility really looks like. It's not just letting somebody go ahead of you in line for lunch. But in all things, considering others more significant than ourselves. I pray, Father, by the grace of God and by the help of the Holy Spirit that you would bring us to that place where that's how we act all the time. Maybe there's some here this morning don't even know what I'm talking about. Why are you so upset? This is how we live. Already doing that. Praise God for that. But for the rest of us, we still struggle with pride. I pray that you would kill it in us. That we would follow the example of our Lord Jesus Christ. That we would humble ourselves. Even to the point of death if necessary that we all may be one just as the Lord Jesus prayed for us <coughs> that the world would know that you sent him and that you love him for we love you and we thank you in Jesus name Amen If you would like to participate in the mission of Crossroads Church through financial support Checks can be mailed to Crossroads Church, Post Office Box 576, West Ossipee, New Hampshire, 03890.